So if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in John 17. Um, there's an important event or there's an important arrival that happens um, between chapters uh, 16 and 17. Uh, we talked about how back in between 14 and 15 uh, that Jesus and the 11 were um, in motion from, the end, from uh, the end of 14 through 15 and 17, 16. The reason we know that is at the end of 14, he says, hey, let's get up and go. Uh, where were they at? They were in the upper room. That's where he performed the Lord's Supper, where he washed their feet, where he gave them um, the commandment to love, where he uh, talked about um, the, uh, the, the, that uh, incredible statement, I am the way, truth, and the life. Uh, and then at the end of that, he says, hey, let's get up and let's go. And where does he go? But um, across the Kidron Valley, through the Mount, or into the Mount of Olives, uh, along the winding path, up the Mount of Olives, to a garden. Uh, and Jesus, of course, as he's going through these, these olive, uh, uh, this pathway where there are these olive vineyards, um, in chapter 15, he uses those olive vineyards as a, as a teaching point, right? He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Um, abide in me and I in you. And he talks about how the vine, the vine and the, the fruit on the, the, the uh, vine produces fruit because of the, it's the life that flows from, um, from the vine to the branch. And, and, and he talks about the gardener who plants and, and so forth. And he uses that to paint that beautiful picture of the Father the Son and us and the Holy Spirit um, coming through them and to us. And then we talked about the Holy Spirit really for most of chapter 16. Uh, so as they've been traveling and using the olive plants and so forth to make those teaching moments, uh, they arrive at the Garden of Gethsemane and apparently Jesus must have had a secret grove, um, a, a private place in the garden where he would often resort to for prayer. And chapter 17 is um, about, or is the prayer that he prays the night before he dies. Uh, so what I want to do up front is give some context and give some kind of uh, background information about what it, was, what it would have been like when they arrived at this place and kind of some of the context that Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us for Jesus' um, going in to pray and, and why I think that's important for this message. And then we'll look at the text in a little bit. So Jesus and the 11, they've arrived at the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, John has presented this as one complete message. So if you didn't know the context and didn't know the other Gospels, you would think that Jesus just started talking back in chapter 13 he hasn't let up yet, hasn't breathed. He's just been going, going, going. But we know from the other Gospels and from th this book even that these, this, this wasn't just one cohesive sermon. It was uh, given throughout the night, uh, throughout that evening from 6 p.m. until midnight. So as they've been going, as they've been moving around, he has been giving all this. But John gives it to us complete because this is really Jesus' whole heart revealed to his 11, to his disciples, that would really serve as the, the constitution, if you will, of the church. This is the, the most important uh, information that we can hold on to and we can learn from. This defines us and, and, and uh, directs us as the followers and as the church of Jesus. So again, one complete message, but given in different places along uh, throughout the night. So we know, uh, we know that they've come to the garden across the Kidron Valley into this olive grove called Gethsemane. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, but Gethsemane was the home to, or really, um, it wasn't just where vineyards were, but it was the home to an olive press. And Gethsemane actually means olive press, and just in case you don't know, an olive press is where pressure is applied to olives to separate liquid from the solid substance, as in the, the shell or the, the outer part of the olive is removed or the liquid is taken out. Um, pretty self-explanatory, right? But an olive press is where the olive juice or the olive oil is separated from the olive itself. So if you're thinking about what Jesus is doing and what he's about to go through, 
And you think about this, this, this process that would have been done in this garden, it kind of makes it a little bit, uh, makes you sit up a little bit straighter, makes you think a little bit about why Jesus would have chose this place to spend the night, the last night of his earthly life, and what message he was trying to send. Again, Jesus had this secret hollow, this secret grove where he frequented for prayer meditation. We know from the other Gospels that Jesus often went up on the mountain to pray and he would look out over the city or over the hills and he would see where his disciples were going, over the lake or so forth. This would have been a place that he would have went to often and he had never showed anybody where it was before and yet he brings them with him this night. There were whispers that this was where King David would retreat for prayer, where King David actually went in exile years before when he was removed from office by his son. But that was all just legend and, 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 and wonders. Uh, but Jesus went to this mountain to pray, and this time he did more than just to go and pray. He went to prepare, and he went to be pressed. Because what Jesus was going to go through that night, what Jesus was going to go through that next day, literally was going to be pressed. He was going to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. And isn't it fitting that John introduced us to Jesus? John the Baptist, of course, introduced us to Jesus back in John 1. Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. But what do lambs do? What are lambs for? What, what is the purpose of a lamb in Israeli culture? They have one purpose. It's to bleed. So here Jesus is in this garden, in this olive press, praying, preparing to be pressed that next day. Now we know that Jesus prayed a lot, but we have just clips and snippets of his prayers here and there. But John 17 gives us a whole chapter, which in turn gives us Jesus' whole heart on display. Before we dive into this chapter, though, I want to pull some context from the other Gospels because that will add the atmosphere and the tone of this prayer. Uh, we're probably going to spend two, three weeks dissecting and studying this prayer, so don't worry. We'll get a lot out of this, especially next time uh, as Jesus talks about what he wants the church or how he wants the church to be unified. You don't want to miss that. As we enter into a season uh, that is so divisive, we've been in a year that's been divisive. What am, I, who am I, what am I saying? As we are in a time and age where the church is so divided, where we as a people are so divided, it, this is a, a so timely text to be talking about, but we'll get that. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But to, to give us some context, when they arrived at the Garden of Gethsemane, here's what Matthew tells us. Mark tells us the same story. Luke tells us as well. Jesus went with them, the twelve, to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Now, he wouldn't let them go in with him. This was his private, this was his prayer closet, but Jesus didn't have a house. He didn't have a home, so where did he go to pray? He went to the garden and went into the grove or to the weeds, right, or behind where no one could see him, but he believed in prayer. He modeled prayer. He taught us that we should go to a private place in prayer, not to be seen or to be, you know, to bring attention to ourselves, no, but to give our attention to God. Prayer is not about, hey, look at me. Prayer is about, hey, I'm going to go and I'm going to spend time with God, and I'm going to get what he needs into my heart because he has something for me and I can't get it unless I go to him. So Jesus says, hey, y'all stay here. I'm going to go in there and pray because this is something I've got to do by myself, but I want y'all to be a part of this in whatever way you can. I go over there to pray and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So he let them go a little bit into the grove, but not all the way. But here we have this, this remarkable and really striking uh, 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 description here. 
This is not something you really read about Jesus. Jesus was always in charge, always powerful, always authoritative, always confident, always saying, don't be afraid. Hey, don't worry. Why are you troubled? Why are you upset? Why are you downtrodden? I mean, this is, not, this is very unlike Jesus. It's something that we have not seen and will not see otherwise. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And literally, the, the Greek there is his bowels begin to move, like his stomach began to churn. His stu- inside was turning out. You've been there before, haven't you? When you're just so anxious, so worried, so overwhelmed because of something so big about to happen in your life or something that you can't control, something overwhelming, something dramatic, something that is just really gonna, could, could potentially change your life for the worse and, and, and not to bring any bad thoughts to your mind. But we've all been there, haven't we? But know this, Jesus was there too. He was sorrowful, as in he was crying. He was overwhelmed by the moment. He was troubled because of what was about to happen. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. Now, notice he says, my soul, my innermost being, the deepest part of me is sorrowful. It's broken, even to death, as in my soul. And this is not about, hey, what's going to happen to me 12 hours from now. This is the feeling that I have right now. The agony that I have inside of me feels like it's enough to kill me. Now, I don't know if you've ever been there. I'm I'm sure you've been burdened before, and I'm sure you can identify with this in some way. But this is not Jesus suffering physical pain or some physical malady. This is Jesus saying that the the anxiety and the, the the, the overbearing weight of the moment was enough to kill him. There's a couple things I want to bring out from this before we move on. This was why Jesus was born. He had always known this would be his destiny, but now it was real and now it was heavy. And and, and let me be very clear. Jesus knew this was coming. Jesus was not caught off guard. He was not uh, uh, angry about this. Before in John 12, he said, hey, now is my moment come. Should I say, deliver me from this moment? God forbid, this is why I was born. He knew from day one. He knew from before day one. He knew from eternity past, this is my destiny. When Adam and Eve sinned and God didn't start over, When Adam and Eve sinned and God said, you know what, I'm not going to kill you like I said I would. You shall surely die. I'm not going to kill you. You're going to spiritually suffer, but I'm not going to physically kill you. I could start over. I should start over. I can just snap my fingers and we can do this again. And Genesis 1, part 2 can happen. right? We can just redo and nobody will ever know about it. The angels might know, but they won't tell anybody because there's no one to tell. So we can start over. But when God decided to not start over, and this is so big, in Genesis 3, when the scripture says that Adam and Eve sinned and then God showed up in the cool of the day. That is so crucial because when God didn't show up in the heat of the day with fire and thunder and wrath, but rather in the cool of the day with grace and mercy, that was where God said, you know what? I'm holy. And yes, holiness is not like sin, but holiness doesn't give up. Anybody here a perfectionist or you maybe you're someone you, you just don't like to stop, you don't like to give up on a project? Thanks, Chris. You like to make if you start something, you want to finish it. That's part of that that's a thumbprint of God in you. And if you don't have that, it doesn't mean you're not thumb, you don't have the thumbprint of God, it just means it wore off at some point. If you are a perfectionist, here's the thing, and maybe you're like this, you don't if you don't give up on somebody, you continue to believe that there's good or there's hope. 
God is holy. And we always emphasize God, his holiness and the fact that he doesn't tolerate sin and he doesn't, or that he doesn't like this or he doesn't like that, and I'm not saying he doesn't, but the fact that God is holy means that he is perfect and that God doesn't give up and that he is willing to clean up somebody else's mess if it means keeping what he started going. And that's because God is way, more, way better than us and so good that we can't understand it or describe it. But when God did not kill Adam and Eve, but rather spared them, and when he came to them and cursed the serpent instead of them, and yes, he, yes, there was a curse on Adam and Eve, but it wasn't eternal judgment. He sent the serpent to hell, but not them. And then he showed them how to sacrifice animals. He took a lamb, I assume it's a lamb, but it might have been a goat, I don't know. He took a lamb in the garden and he showed them how to kill it. And he took that lamb's clothing and he put it on them. And he said, listen, y'all, one day somebody else is going to do this. One day I'm going to put on skin just like y'all and I'm going to do this. So in that moment, God decided, I have got to fix this myself. But in the meanwhile, things are going to go on like they are. And I'm going to set the stage for the perfect moment. So you've got to understand, Jesus has been getting ready for this since Genesis 3. Probably before that, right? He knew it. He knew, yet he still started it. And then when they sinned, he still endured with it. So he's been getting ready for this since the beginning. So it wasn't that he was dreading it or was surprised by it. So what was it? This is what we need to understand. Jesus had and has, but in the past tense, as a person in his ministry, he had a soul. He was fully human. And what makes us fully human is what makes us distinct creatures is not our body, as much as we think that's what makes us unique. It's our soul. Our soul is our character. Our soul is our essence. Our soul is our mind. Our soul is the spark that gives us shape and direction and identity to an otherwise shell or a tent. Take away our soul and we're just bodies. We're just corpses. We're just, and yes, our bodies are important. They're vessels that carry our soul. But our soul is what God breathed into existence that matches with a conception of a baby from a mother and a father. A physical womb is met with a, with a spiritual soul, with a soul from God's breath. So God creates souls in consort with the conception of life. But Jesus' soul was not created. His soul was that which had existed from the beginning. You understand this? God creates every day. People said that God created back in Genesis 1. He hadn't created since. No, God creates every single day because life is created. Man and woman create a, 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 a life in the womb, but God creates souls. God puts the soul there. There's not a bucket of souls in heaven where God just puts a, dis a coin in the dispenser and it shoots it out. I mean, some philosophers believe that. That's not how it works. There's not a pre-existence of souls. God creates souls uniquely for every life that is conceived. He thinks about it and comes up with it and predestines and ordains and, and sends that soul to meet that body or to meet that, that um, infant in the womb. God creates souls, but Jesus' soul was not created the soul of Jesus the word of God the logos of God the essence of God always existed it's the second person of the trinity it's the word of God that when he spoke in Genesis it created or he created life the father the son before he was the son he was the word he still is the word but that is the soul of Jesus it's, it's been he has existed forever that's why in the creeds the ancients confessed that Jesus was begotten not made the only begotten Son of God, as in He was not created, the soul or the Word of God became 
flesh, took on flesh. So I bring attention to Jesus' soul because when we see what it was to see Jesus' humanity and divinity coexist. Because yes, Jesus as God knew it was coming, was prepared for it, was ready for it, was made for it, was here for it. But his soul, his humanity grieved just like we grieve. His soul dreaded it just like our souls dread it. His soul was sorrowful just like our souls would be sorrowful. Now, because his experience is unique and will always be unique to just him, it's hard for us to understand that fully, but I wanted to bring attention to this. Yes, Jesus was God and was not, a wor not worried or afraid of anything, but he's also a man, and as a man, as a person, he dealt with that same tension that we deal with when there's something that is potentially unknown to us. So his soul was agonized, his soul was sorrowful, his soul was heavy. Why? Because what was about to happen to Jesus? He was about to suffer as God and as man. He was going to suffer from separation from the Father and from the burden and punishment of sin. Now, this is important because God is triune and the Father, Son, and Spirit have always been unified. They never have been separated. They've never been disconnected. The Trinity was not divided when Jesus died. Jesus and the Father were in agreement on what was about to happen. But the man side of Jesus said, I don't know if I really want this to happen. This is not what would be ideal to me. But Jesus was in submission to the Father, which was always a part of the deal. Jesus submitted to his Father's will. Now think about this. When Jesus was baptized, the Spirit descended on him and the Father delighted over him. He said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So in that moment, we see the Father delight, to the, delight over the Son because the Son was being obedient to the Father and was starting his ministry. But on the cross, Jesus was also obeying God. Isaiah 53 says, let's go to this, says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. So it pleased God to see Jesus submit and suffer, to be fully humiliated, because he was being obedient for the purpose that he had came for, to die for the sins of the world. It was dealing with this sort of pressure and agony knowing that he would suffer, be separated from the Father's delight, and suffer under sin's uh, wrath that brought Jesus this sort of agony and this sort of burden, this sort of trouble. Now, uh, let's go back to verse 39. This, back at Matthew, it told us this. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. So Jesus agonized, sorrowful, troubled, but he goes a little farther. So none of that kept him from doing his job. None of that kept him from doing what he came to do. None of that kept him from loving us. And being anybody else, we would have stopped at the sorrowful and agony, right? But Jesus goes a little farther because he always goes a little farther. And thank God for that. I don't go as far as I should go sometimes. We all stop short of what might hurt us or be a trouble to us. But Jesus goes a little farther. He fell on his face. As in collapse, as in just fell prostrate. Jesus fell on his face. That's a common phrase used in the Bible. He fell on his face because the moment demanded it. In this moment, as he prays before God, we get to hear sacred, precious words in a conversation between Jesus and his Father. Many refer to this as the high priestly prayer. Jesus, of course, the great high priest, was about to pray over the offering he was about to make himself and intercede for those to whom it was being offered, or for whom it was being offered. But unlike the Levitical priest, Jesus' offering would not be symbolic. It would be the real deal. Once and for all, you can read Hebrews 9 and 10, 
where Jesus would obtain and accomplish forgiveness of sins and reconcile everyone to the Father, every person to the Father, if they would believe in him. So we'll unpack all those elements along the way. But there's two things that we're going to hear from this prayer. We're going to hear Jesus talk to the Father about what he had been given and what he would give. We're going to hear him talk about, hey, this is what you gave me, God, and this is what I've done with it, and this is what I'm going to give as I'm about to leave. So what was he given? What would he give? And then we're going to hear him talk about his mission and his commission, as in his mission to obey God. He'd been given a mission by God to go and die on the cross. He was going to do that, fulfill it, and accomplish it. He also was going to give a commission to his followers. He was going to build the church in his aftermath. So these things, the, the prayer, we don't, they're not really sequential. They're kind of all woven throughout, so we're not going to just divide it up and, and talk about these individual. I just wanted to kind of show you an outline of what the prayer is going to be about. Um, we're actually going to look just at the few verses, at the first few verses tonight, uh, where we get to hear Jesus talk to the Father in a very personal and intimate way. Uh, whereas Jesus was always speaking as God, talking with authority, we see him a little vulnerable and a little emotional in this prayer. And that's something that is, is just really unique to this text. And on that thought, we're going to focus on one specific thing that speaks to why Jesus was going through with all this. Why he was uh, 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 dealing with this agony, why he had come, and why he was going to the cross, and what he would provide in his death. Now the first verse completes a beautiful and powerful picture for us that we've been up, built up to talking about Jesus as a man. Verse 1 says, Jesus spoke these words... He lifted up his eyes to heaven. Lifted up his eyes. Now, in the, the New Testament, we hear this phrase, in the Bible, we hear this phrase, lifted up your eye, lift up your eyes, or lifted up his or her eyes. It's the idea of when we pray to God, our spirits are lifted. So notice the contrast. Jesus had a downcast soul and a fallen flesh, or a, 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 a you know, agonized flesh, and he would eventually die. He had a downcast soul, he had fallen flesh, but he lifted up his eyes. So I don't know what, is down, what, what, what you're downcast about or what you're fallen about or what has brought you down, but I can guarantee you this, if you will pray, God will lift up your spirits. If you will pray, God will raise up what the world has taken down. And that's what Jesus is doing. In this moment when he feels like the world is pulling him down and he doesn't know if he can take another step, he lifts up his eyes. So know that you can do the same. Lift up your eyes in anticipation. We close our eyes, of course, to avoid distractions from this world, to focus our senses on another world, but we open our eyes to a heavenly world when we do that. Just know that when we pray, we are lifting our eyes toward heaven. There's no way that ends badly if we are really looking with anticipation. Something bad or broken may, be, may have driven us to prayer, but prayer is going to drive us to something much better. But better is a word that is layered and placed so much, has so much baggage on it. We hear the word better and we automatically expect things to be a certain way based on how we understand what would be better or what would be worse, how the world would, would, would summarize summarize it. But sometimes God's better comes about differently than we'd expect it. Isn't it true? Sometimes God's best is at the end of a road that we would describe as broken. Jesus, of course, was about to be broken and poured out. So when he is lifting up his eyes and he is about to pray a prayer that suggests things are going to get better, just know that sometimes the way God brings about better is not the way we would have expected it. Yet, are you willing to trust God 
that he won't let you down? Because what did Jesus say the night before he died when he was doing the Lord's Supper? He took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. Now, usually when, when we think about somebody blessing something, we think about something being put together, don't we? When you bless something, it's about something that's going to be good for you or something you're going to enjoy. You don't bless food that you're going to hate. You bless food because it's about to be a good meal, right? Sometimes it's bad, but we don't talk about that or if, unless we cooked it ourselves and we just embarrass. We bless the food because we are looking forward to enjoying it. We bless the meal we, bless, we, we, we ask for a blessing on a child or a thing or a house or an event because we expect it to be good. But Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it and he said, this is my body. So I'm blessing this, but let me just make it clear to you that this blessing is going to involve me being broken and poured out. Yet it's still going to end better than you would expect it to be. But I'm willing to trust God that the blessing may lead to a breaking, but that breaking is going to lead to something even better. It's the middle part that we have to hold on and trust and believe in, don't we? Now in a vacuum, we hear Jesus say in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. Now we hear Jesus say glorify uh, glorify me, Father, and that I may glorify you. And we think something incredible must be about to happen. But we know the story so that we can take from, we can take from this, or, or what, can, what should we take from this? Because we know Jesus is about to experience something that we, not, we would not necessarily describe as glorious, as good, as fun, as enjoyable. He asked the Father to glorify him, but what does that mean? Let's talk about this word glorify for a minute. We see it all over the Bible. It's a Greek word, doxa. I like the, the Greek word for, the Greek letter for X is cool. It's, uh, it, it looks even, when you write it, 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 doesn't look that, it doesn't look that nice, or at least not for me. But the word doxa in Greek means to determine or define something's value. To esteem, to exalt, to magnify, to make famous, to clothe with splendor. So this is big. Don't miss this. Jesus is saying, God... My purpose is to glorify you. My purpose is to determine and define your value. We know that it was to make God as immensely valuable as he could make him. It was to make God famous. My purpose is to make you famous, to exalt you and magnify you. That's the purpose given to every person. But every one of us has a unique and specific way we're to get this done. Our lives are meant to be lived for God's glory in a unique and personal way. And we should all seek and aspire to live out this purpose. But notice... Jesus is asking for this opportunity. He says, Father, I want you to glorify me. I want you to determine my value and my worth, and I want you to exalt me to whatever level you want me to be exalted at so that I might give you what you're worthy of. I want you to do with my life what will give you the most glory. Do you see what I'm saying? I want you to glorify me, but not to my end, but to your end. He says, Father, make me known in a way that will make you most known. I mean, most of us, we just pray, God, make me known, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> make me known in a way that will make you most known. Father, give me whatever place in life that will point to your place over all of life. I mean, hey, I would pray and I want to pray, God, give me whatever place that gives me dominance over everybody else. But Jesus says, God, give me whatever place that will point to your place over all. Does that make sense? Do we see, we understand what he's saying, Father, glorify me so I can glorify you. Are we willing to pray that kind of prayer? To ask that from our Father? 
Do you believe that Jesus, do you believe like Jesus believed and modeled that our Father knows best? That you would be willing to follow him into the darkest of nights like Jesus did from Gethsemane on? I know Jesus' prayer has specific and unique meaning to him, but still, his posture is one that we should share and adopt. But of course, Jesus' pathway would result in a wide-scale, far-reaching implication and impact. Verse 2, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given. So the reason why he wants Father, he's asking for God to do this is because he has a mission. He has a purpose. It's to bring eternal life to as many people as possible. And listen to verse 3. He wants to, this is, this is, you should, if this verse is not highlighted in your Bible, it should be. This is eternal life. That they may know you the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Isn't that incredible that we have it defined for us? I mean, you ask a hundred different preachers and a hundred different Christians, hey, what's eternal life? And they'll give you all sorts of different definitions, and it's right here. This is eternal life, that we may know God through Jesus Christ. That's the only way. But notice how it isn't defined. It's not defined as simply having a guarantee reservation in heaven, even though it means that. It's not defined as being in a certain place for a certain amount of time, having a certain amount of promises or guarantees. It's defined as knowing God through Jesus Christ. Knowing in the most intimate and personal way possible. Let me drop some stuff on you that might be odd at first, but we'll be done after this. Eternal life, and eternal specifically, the word eternal, doesn't necessarily and definitely doesn't only speak of time. It doesn't. Hear me clearly. The Bible obviously promises everlasting life in heaven to all who believe. I'm not saying it doesn't. It does. But the emphasis of salvation has never been about quantity of life or length of life. It's about quality. This is very important. If salvation to you has been taught as only meaning about living forever, there's more to it. Quantity is a given, but quality should not be overlooked. The, the Greek word is so rich, yes, it speaks of time, but it really is less about endless and more about full. See, when we hear eternal, we think, well, that, that means it never runs out. But I want you to think about that means it's running over. You see the difference? Endless is, oh, I don't know, I'm never going to die. And you're not. But let's talk about living. As in, to the fullest of what God has measured for you. We think about being saved and living forever and think, oh, wow, life never ends. That's great. But the point is that we should think, wow, life is always full. We don't got to wait to get to heaven for it to be full. It's full right now. And not in a materialistic way, though God is good to us. Endless life that isn't any better is just a drag. I know people that are miserable, but they're, they think they're going to heaven. Listen, Jesus wants us to have life and have it full. He doesn't just promise endless life. He promises eternal life. Romans 6 calls it new life. Walk in, not die in. Walk in newness of life. And again, if you study the word, the word in the Greek 
is this word that we know, eon. You've heard of eon before. Having a quality that lasts for an age. As in, it's a quality that does not age or break down. As contrasted with what is brief and fleeting. So what is Jesus telling us? That true, eternal, and full life is found in him. In this life that he alone modeled perfectly and enables to every person. So that he declares... In verse 4 and 5, he says, I have glorified you on earth, Father. I have finished the work which you have given me. Now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What is the goal of this? To give eternal life to the world. That we might experience it ourselves. And it's all found in knowing Jesus. Eternal life is knowing Jesus, growing in Jesus, and going for Jesus. As in going out there, living. That's eternal life. And listen, I'm not undermining or underscoring heaven. When, you, when we die, you're going to go to heaven and it's going to be woo so good. But the Bible talks about that very little. Jesus talks about knowing him a lot, though. In a rich, deep, sweet way that cannot be experienced apart from him. All because. All because Jesus was willing to lay his life down. All of it down. His flesh and blood were broken and poured out so that he could be raised in spirit and fire. And if we trust him, we too lay down fleeting and temporary life and we take up greater, better, and eternal life. If you have trusted in Jesus to save you, you have eternal life tonight. That means you're going to go to heaven when you die. That means there's going to be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death. But I hope we can open your eyes to this even better truth. Eternal life is more than just a clock that doesn't expire. It's a heart inspired and on fire. You know why this is relevant to you right now? Because if you don't go to heaven tonight, then that means tomorrow you wake up with more than just a watch on that says, hey, this is never going to end. You have a heart inside of you that is inspired and on fire. And don't let Satan tell you, well, you're going to you're gonna have to just work, wait this one out. You're going to have to just, you know, Bite your, teeth, you know, bite your lip and deal with it. No, you have an inspired and on fire heart from the life of Jesus Christ. Real quickly before we close, look at, listen to verse 6 and 10. It'll set us up for next week. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have surely known that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them, I do not pray for the world, but for those to whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. I am glorified in them. How is he glorified in us? When we live in and take hold of his eternal life. What is he praying for? That we would know him. Grow in Him and go for Him. Not just look at our clock, but listen to our hearts as He has inspired and set us on fire. He says in verse 6, I don't take them out of the world. Eternal life does not take us out of this world, but it gives us an out-of-this-world connection with God. 
By reading Jesus' word, trusting in his word, we can have eternal life and glorify God with our lives. He never described eternal life as just a destination, but as a determination for this life in a way that you can experience now. Think about this. Jesus said, I am the way. What's a way? It's a road, a pathway, a way to live. Not just a way to live in the future, but a way to live right now. So lift up your head, lift up your eyes, lift up your spirits. Because we're on a pathway to somewhere. And until we get there, we have eternal life right now. Are you living in a way that glorifies him? Are you living up to that eternal life that he has given you? Jesus told a parable about what it means to be saved. And listen to how practical this parable was. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Every day we're building something. We're working towards something. We're living. That's very practical, right? Build a house. Rain falls, flood comes, wind blow, beat on the house, but it does not fall because it's founded on the rock. Full life takes advantage of empty days. Full life doesn't just wait to die. Full life lives every day to the fullest, endlessly anticipating all that God has in store for us. If you're saved tonight, if you're a Christian tonight, you have eternal life. Not just endless, but full. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. That cup's running over. Take advantage of it. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you. Thank you for full, eternal life. God, I don't, I don't have to lay my head down tonight worried about dying. I know that if I wake up here, I'm in your hands. If I wake up in heaven, I'm in even better hands. But God, I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to waste my days because eternal life is meant to be enjoyed and took advantage of right now. God, somebody here tonight needs to raise their hands up to you and say, Father, I knew I had endless life, but I didn't know I had full life. I've been waiting for somebody to fill me up and I didn't realize I already had a full cup. Lord, you have given us eternal life because you did this for us. You laid your life down for us. You emptied yourself for us. Lord, so we likewise should empty ourselves so that you might fill us with what's right and true and eternal. If you can lay your life down and have confidence a cross is going to lead to a resurrection, what are we waiting on? Because we don't even have to go to the cross. We just have to bow on our knees and receive from you eternal, yes, endless, but full life. Father, thank you for that. May you comfort your people with these words. In Jesus' name, amen.